This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 303 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, and I am in Nashville, Tennessee, and sitting across from me is Peter Kiley, brewmaster, co-owner for Monday Night. We're in their Nashville uh, Monday Night Preservation something or other tap room here. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thanks for having me, man. I screwed up the name of this place. It's all right. It, it used to be the Preservation Society, and then yeah. there is some lawyers involved, so now we're the Preservation Co. Preservation Co. Okay. It's, a, it, it's all about surviving these legal streets. Hey, you know, this is the the, the uh, roads that uh, brewers uh, run on these days. So uh, nonetheless, excited that we can finally have this conversation uh, in full transparency. We had hoped and planned and scheduled this conversation back in December when I was in Atlanta. And then, uh, you know, the everything conspired against us. And that morning of is like, ah, oh, can't do it today. We've got some some stuff going on. COVID sucks. COVID yeah. does suck. Yeah. We had a whole house of <sighs> COVID. The house of pestilence. Gross. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've been there. I've lived through that. Uh, you know, I think most of us have at this point. So yes. anyway, uh, COVID got in the way of that. Fuck COVID. Um, but now here we are and found a great time to sit down and have this conversation finally. And of course, weirdly enough, uh, you know, it was that trip to Atlanta that kind of spurred me off on my, uh, on, on uh, kind of kickstarted the whole check trip stuff that I took back in March and folks have been able to listen along on some of that, but it all kind of came out of uh, talking with Yoron and Sean and uh, uh, Eric Larkin of Cohesion who are all doing a collab before the you know, first day that I was there. And uh, of course that spurred me on to go reach out to the check folks and all the rest is history. Speaking of that, um, next week is our last podcast uh, from that Czech Republic trip uh, featuring Adam Broge, brewmaster for Budvar. I know you can, you know, I, Budvar is probably most of the folks that have gone on that trip's favorite brewery. It's just a remarkable place. I have very fond memories from that cellar. A lot of beer was consumed. It was very cold. Yeah. I think Sean um, from Halfway during that point, he didn't have a jacket with him. And we all have a lot of funny photos of him almost perishing. <laughs> and it's not like he has a lot of like in flesh to insulate him either. You have um, to drink your way through it. Yeah. As anyone who's met Adam knows, he's a highly technical uh, brewer and also very enthusiastic about brewing. Um, it's a must listen for brewers interested in Czech pale lager. And I'm not going to call it about Pilsner. It's definitely Czech pale lager. Pilsner is that beer they make in Pilsen. Uh, and then Czech Budweis, they make Budweiser. Um, so you can't call it Pilsner there. Nope. Um, it those, is, those are fighting words. Those are fighting words. Yeah. Um, this is definitely, definitely reoriented how I think about all of these things and has changed the terminology that I use. Um, anyway, you know, as, as Peter can attest, it's a great episode. So tune into that um, next week. Before we get started on this one, for years, G&D Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with 3,000 plus breweries across the country. They are proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. They know brewing doesn't stop at five o'clock and nor do they. G&D uses quality components, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. With 24-7 service and support, your brewery will never stop. Remote monitor your chiller for simple and fast access to all the information you need, providing you with the peace of mind your operation is running smoothly. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next 
project. Peter, was it as exciting to listen to me read that as you thought it would be? I feel like I've been waiting 302 episodes just to hear that in person. Wow. I've I, made it, y'all. I've I, made it. I hope I didn't disappoint. Uh, <laughs> uh, looking forward to uh, hanging out with those guys uh, here at CBC. Of course, by the time people listen to this, we will have already done that. So maybe I should just time shift that. Um, the magic the magic of media today. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG, proud distributor of New Zealand Hops Limited, who invites you to experience Nectaron, an aromatic New Zealand hop drenched by tropical waterfalls of grapefruit, passion fruit, pineapple, and peach. Nectaron is in stock and ready to ship, so order now and unlock the delicious citrus potential of your next IPA or NEIPA. Contact your BSG sales rep with any questions or visit bsgcraftbrewing.com slash hops to learn more. And if you hear Old Orchard mentioned in the brewing community, don't be surprised. The flavored craft juice concentrate blends from Old Orchard have shipped to over 46 states. The new brewing customers often mention discovering Old Orchard through the word of mouth recommendation of another brewer. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. So Peter, let's start off with you. Let's uh, give me the background on you. Give me the background on Monday night and, uh, you know, what you guys are doing here and uh, what your arc through brewing looked like. Wow. All right. Big question. So Monday Night Brewing's uh, going on 12 years old. Um, we started in Atlanta. Since then, we've grown over the years to more of a regional brewery size. Um, we have tap rooms, two in Atlanta, one here in Nashville, brew pub over in Birmingham, a new one in Charlotte and another one in Knoxville, and hopefully we'll stop at that. <laughs> um, my arc through brewing has been, I think it's, I don't know anyone that has a smooth one. Yeah. Um, I was a winemaker before hmm. beer maker, so I understood enough. Um, studied chemistry in school, and that has definitely come in very useful over the years. But yeah, did uh, wine, studied be a sommelier, did that, and then kind of stumbled into beer. Hmm. was never part of the plan. So I'm happy to be here. What uh, what what made it click for you with beer? Well, I mean, when I came back to Atlanta from California, I was making wine for a, um, a relatively large winery called Chateau Alain, and that wasn't my favorite experience. Um, it was very much a big corporate environment, 500 plus employees. And I remember meeting these guys one day, and they were like pitching me on this idea. I had never brewed a beer in my life, not even home brewed, and they were like, "Hey." we want to do beers and we want to do beers for the weekdays. And I was like, what does that mean? I'm like, every beer is for the weekday. And they're like, no, but we want these beers to be elevated, to pair well food, think more like wine intersecting with beer. And I was like, that's a cool idea. I was like, what do you want to call it? They were like, Monday Night Brewing. And I was like, that's the stupidest fucking name I've ever heard. <laughs> but obviously um, these people are now um, my family. They're my brothers. One of them is actually my brother-in-law. Jeff, our CEO, and then my wife, Rachel. So yeah, we started this business and it's turned into something that we're really proud of. It's been awesomely stimulating getting to change the landscape of Atlanta beer and then also just being a part of the larger community. And then one of the things I've always appreciated so much between the difference of wine and beer is how quickly I get to enjoy my work, right? Sure, just sure. The idea of you know running a trial that doesn't take you a year to three years is really, it's stimulating. I have, I have a very different relationship with time, which comes in handy, um, especially for this work that we do over at the garage or barrel aging facility. But in general, I think beer is just hyper stimulating. 
A lot, has, a lot has changed for Georgia beer over that time frame. Um, oh, a lot yeah. of laws have improved significantly, and uh, you know, um, you know, Georgia brewers have adv- advocated and uh, helped uh, kind of you know alter the landscape of that. Um, but also, the the beers that you all make have changed over those times, I imagine too. Um, what was the initial idea? You mentioned you know beers for the weekdays, beers that uh, um, that somehow can feel elevated about that. And I remember some of the early beers that we tasted from you all. That it was always those barrel projects that uh, that somehow made it out our way to, to craft beer and brewing in front of our, our blind judges um, you know but obviously that's that's just a, a small portion of what you brew these days how's that uh, that product map or uh, you know even that makes it sound too clinical how the beers that have inspired you and that you wanted to share with people kind of evolved over the last 12 years of Monday night that's a great question I, I don't know if I am introspective enough to give a not on the spot answer. Um, in Atlanta, it's it's one of these places being from Atlanta that it's extremely diverse, right? You can't really just, it, it, at least I've told myself over the years, I can't just make one subsect of beer. I can't just like do one thing for one group because there's not really just one group. Um, so we've been trying to make everything um, and explore beer in all the ways possible. Um, obviously when it came to our barrel aging facility, that was one of those ties that I still felt like from my wine world that I always just loved. Just the, the there are certain flavors that you can fake. Time is just not one of them, right? Mm. Um, and so I've always loved that idea of whether it's blending, just maturation within itself, and then obviously whether it's non-sour, mixed culture, whatnot. Those beers have always been really fun. I, if I had to choose a class of beer that I enjoyed to make the most, it would be that. But I think over the years too, we've had the luxury of having an amazing team in my role as brewmaster has obviously been, it's got its ups and downs, right? You know, when we do well, it's the team and that's always the case. Obviously when things don't go well, it's, I, I take that one on the head, but getting to cultivate this team of uh, this collective mind, it's allowed us to turn over so many rocks and explore so many different styles of beer. Um, and we don't just explore it for the sake of, you know, checking it off the list. We don't present anything that we're not extremely proud of. Sure. We, don't, we don't like to reinterpret certain styles really at all, or at least the first time we present them, we present them as accurately as possible. And then once we've established ourselves with that style, then we can maybe put our own little twist on it. But, you know, coming from wine, especially, I believe that regionality has a role and that you should present things the way that they just are. You don't need to reinterpret it, which is oftentimes the American way. Um, but I think about that in our terms, you know, like some of the the best uh, abstract painters are also skilled figurative painters and you have to learn the rules before you break them. You understand composition, color, you know, form. And, and once you do that, then you can start breaking the rules and pushing that to see where it goes. But uh, it helps to have those fundamentals down first that you build. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to be able to dribble and do layups before you start dunking all over the place. Um, sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think that our evolution has been, I mean, it, it's, at times it's rough, right? Just like with scaling and growing and mm-hmm. just, as we say, suffering from success sometimes. Um, and then there's often times where we just get tripped up just because of ourselves um, or certain styles require, whether it's time and then at the end of the road, you realize it didn't work. But I mean, really, it's just been kind of putting the blinders on, keeping our heads down, focusing on ourselves. Um, I have some regrets in that world too. Like, you know, we were very late to start collaborating with other breweries. Mm. It was always kind of like, we wanted to like 
just make sure that we were buttoned up enough to even present ourselves. And I now know that obviously I could have learned so much more, so much faster <laughs> if I had been around the people that I'm surrounding myself with now. Right. I think there is a, an immense amount of imposter syndrome that I probably still carry around. I think I'm just now at the point where my self-doubt um, is being outpaced by, you know, my confidence. But it's, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, I hear it all the time from from folks that I talk to that uh, um, I was filming a class this week on wild and sour beer for our all access video program with Lauren Limbach from New Belgium. Um, there is probably no one more experienced in that world of managing wood and sour beer, blending everything else. I mean, she's been doing it for, you know, almost two decades now, an amazing one. And even she was recounting feeling like an imposter sometimes. Like if there's, if that's an imposter, none of us are qualified to do <laughs> shit in this world, you know? And, and so I think that some of that is, is having, you know, for all of us is coming to grips. The fact that there aren't people that, yes, there are people that are, that are smarter than us, but that doesn't mean that we can't keep pursuing that and we're not, uh, you know, uh, validly expressing the things that we do through these channels. And I think, you know, being humble and admitting that everyone, all of us are learning, even the smartest old school brewers, folks that have been there for a long time, the ones that are doing the best work these days will tell you that, you know, they, they, they keep their ear to the ground and they still want to learn because as soon as you stop learning, as soon as you feel like you know everything, then you're fucked. Yep. So humility yeah. is an amazing ingredient. It really is. It really is. Um, you know, and, and understanding that you can learn things from everyone coming from everywhere. Yep. Uh, and there's always something to learn. Um, just like uh, this beer that we're drinking now, Bus Beer. Group of brewers, go to Ch you know, Czech Republic, learn new things about brewing, brew beers together, keep challenging each other. Uh, you know, this is part of the beautiful spirit of American craft, American craft beer, where we are now. Anyway, we're going to, I want to talk about high gravity brewing. Uh, that's something that you guys have been pushing on and learning about. Um, something that could be interesting for folks that are listening out there. Before we do that, Take your brewing to the next level with AccuBrew's revolutionary fermentation monitoring system, now predicting specific gravity. With AccuBrew, you have precise control over the fermentation process and ensure consistent high-quality results. Their cloud-based app and compact sensor work together to monitor specific gravity, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature. AccuBrew is CIP-ready and designed to stay out of your way. Their set-it-and-forget-it solution streamlines systems and processes, confirms consistency, and helps detect problems before they ruin a batch. Join the AccuBrew community today and experience 24-7 peace of mind. Visit AccuBrew.io to learn more. Also, brewing is currently one of the most innovative, adaptive, and fast-paced industries in the world, with consumer demand shifting to the latest and greatest trends. It can be difficult for production teams to keep up with the requirements. The ProFill series of rotary can fillers from ProBrew are accelerating plant production everywhere. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how we can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. And Indie Hops breeds new hop varieties to help brewers captivate beer lovers. Indie's unique varieties like Strata, Lorian, Luminosa, and Meridian are trusted by brewers worldwide to modernize, brighten, and diversify their beer lineup. Indie also offers classics that thrive in Oregon terroir, such as Chinook, Crystal, and Sterling. Thoughtfully crafted and selected hops to meet your brewing needs. Visit IndieHops.com slash podcast to discover what's new in hop flavors. Indie Hops, life is short. Let's make it flavorful. 
All right, Peter, talk to me about high gravity brewing. This is an interesting one. You were, as we were talking before we started the podcast, um, this phase of you now, of course, you're, you've reached regional brewery scale. You're brewing around 30,000 ish barrels a year. Um, you know, this, that's a, a difficult place to be because keeping, continuing to make production jumps for brewer size gets very expensive. And, uh, you know, from there and these small efficiencies can make big differences for you, but doing it right without sacrificing quality becomes a, you know, a big piece of that. And so you're trying to solve some problems, especially coming out of this pandemic where we know that there's a lot of variability and all of a sudden risk has a whole different picture for all of us here in the brewing industry. What we invest in and how we grow is incredibly careful because we realize that, uh, you know, things can go the wrong way really quickly. And sometimes we can't predict all of those things. So, um, you know, talk to me about this project that you're, uh, you've been working on to, to kind of, uh, you know, increase your brewing ability, you know, <laughs> uh, without sacrificing quality, uh, in the brew house that you have. So, I kind of want to go backwards in time to understand the thinking behind this. High gravity brewing is a very common thing, right? Oh, sure. Probably one of the most common brewing styles given the macro brewers that uh, use these these techniques. Absolutely. So it didn't even start around us solving for increasing output, which was, I think, maybe one of the ironies of this. It started around just the hangover from COVID. Um, Yeah. I think a lot of breweries, um, at least the people that I chat with, people that are honest about their business and that want to share I mean, be transparent. Retention's been a really difficult thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so when it comes to having an amazing team, which I think is probably the greatest thing that Monday Night Brewing has is its team. I found that post COVID, I mean, obviously we're a business. I, if I could pay everyone every single dollar I could, I would. But unfortunately, I'm already the L on our PL and my business partners don't appreciate that all the time. So it kind of started with this idea where. I had to have the honest conversation with myself about what is the minimum staff to say that people just walked out or that, you know, shit really hit the fan. Um, Everyone getting sick and whatnot. What's the minimum amount of people that we need in order to stay operating as a brewery, right? Even if we don't have people in our tap rooms or private events have shut down and everything else, like it, just like it did, how many people will we need just to remain being a brewery? So that was kind of where the idea started. Um, from there, I started putting together models of like, how can I do this? And I also don't have any money, right? So I'm like, well, obviously- you can't just invest in automation in order to solve that. Yeah, uh, or right. like d of water and kind of doing it that classic way of just like, I'm going to go brew high gravity, post you know, fermentation, just going to water it down, do it that way, which I think a lot of us know. Water that. it back, Peter. Water. Watering down sounds bad. Watering it back- doesn't sound bad. You got to use the right terms here. Semantics, you know, Um, I don't do it like that. So, um, and that was kind of the kicker. I was like, I I wish I could do that. I've seen so many amazing operations produce so many amazing beer. Um, Actually, I think recently on the direct fire you did with Matt um, from Firestone, he kind of talks about the array of water and the use of it there. And um, Vinny talks about it too on the the West Coast IPA, using that to to pack lines before they, you know, just to cut down on oxidation. Yeah. All that makes sense. And unfortunately that takes money. Um, there's, there's definitely cheaper ways of doing that, right. You know, putting, you know, water into a fermenter, bubbling CO2 through it, blah, blah, blah. But so I really wanted to figure out how could we reduce just turns going into a tank. So that's kind of where it started. And it's a relatively easy idea, right? Just some pretty basic math. I would say the water chemistry part is where you start to think about what you're doing, but we have a 30 barrel four vessel system and we have a lot of one twenty barrel fermenters. So we're like, okay, 
how can I fill up these things in three turns without pulling too much water at once from our hot liquor tank, which obviously takes time to regenerate a lot of energy there. So anywhere between 11 and 16 barrels of water knocked out per turn for either a 90 or a 120. So take 90s into two turns and take 120s into three. Because we also brew around the clock Monday mm. through Friday. And so at this point, we weren't even able to do that. So I'm like, how can I brew a 120 a day without keeping people here for beyond eight hours? Because I do believe that work is not everything and that people should have lives outside of their brewing careers. Um, and shocker, no one wants to work third shift, uh, <laughs> you know, bring, bring beer just because you've got a certain type of, uh, type of brew house. And, you know, that's a that's another truth about retention is that yeah. we do have that model right now. So was kind of solving for these data points that I knew and then really solving for the fears that I possessed of like what happens when the worst case scenario happens. So we started down this road um, and the outcomes have been awesome. Hmm. I would say that we figured out a way for certain beers, you know, with our system, our mash ton and lot ton are relatively undersized versus our 42 barrel kettle and then our 38 barrel um, Whirlpool. And this was a, a system that I would say that I wasn't a part of when they acquired it in the very beginning. It's been our original brew house. I've grown to love it and understand it, but there's definitely things I would want to change about it. Um, so we found that it worked really well for a you know, slap fight, for um, Taco Tuesday, for a lot of these beers. But one of our beers is a beer called Dr. Robot, which is a kettle sour brand. Um, and that's probably, I'd say right now, probably number one, number two brand of ours. Mm. And trying to figure out that one has been really interesting. <laughs> sure. Um, Obviously, when it comes to sugars and ABV, it's pretty easy just to take that grain up front, you know, divvy it up into different turns, kind of make that work. Yeah. But then from there, that that one kind of messed with my brain for a while, trying to really solve for both how acidification happens in a brew house. It's strange how the higher the gravity, the less quick and less efficient your acidic conversion is. Um, and then from there, really just making sure that all the water you're putting in on the back ends matching up. I'm a huge fan of triprotic acid. So like phosphoric acid, it's really good. Um, it's better than I think sometimes lactic when it comes to these projects. Hmm. Um, Why? So, well, I promise I don't work for like phosphoric acid lobbyist groups or anything. Um, I'm going to speak passionately about it. Um, phosphoric acid, H3PO4, right? Triprotic. It's really safe acid to use and it's a smart acid to use. Mm -hmm. Um, whether you're thinking about PA, KPA values, really it's good against, I mean, it's not one of the strongest acids. Obviously it's got three stages of dissociation, but I would say in regards to buffering capacity, team safety, overall efficacy can't be beat. Um, we use it for minor acidification on our brew house and maybe certain brands we want to use acidulated malt, but I like to have really proper conversion, um, you know, starch tests, make sure everything's good. But then for projects like this, where I'm trying to turn, say, Dr. Robot, for example, is 33% kettle sour. It finishes around 3.7 pH, which obviously pH is not really a great tool versus like titratable sure. acidity. Um, but so trying to figure out how to turn that into two, but still maintain the ratio of 33, when obviously now half of it is kettle sour, but then you're inputting the water on the back end of these boils and you're integrating it in line through knockout and aerating it there. So that's homogenized. So it's all present prior to fermentation. So it's kind of in a way versus putting something in post-fermentation. This is more chemically integrated in this way. So it comes across as a more honest flavor. It feels more true. There's actually been in our sensory panels, we're not able to pick out who's who.
But um, that was a really stimulating project. So as I'm following you here, you're you're dosing in some phosphoric acid then in order to just balance and, and aim that in addition to the, the lacto component that you have there? Well, so that's, yeah. So say you're post-boil, right? And yeah. we're over in Whirlpool. We got 38 barrels in the Whirlpool. Um, sorry to 42. It's actually probably about 37. Um, so boil is efficient. We get it over there. And then during that knockout, we're also putting in water just so by the time it enters fermenter, it's already at its normal OG value. Um, and then we acidify that water as well. And then of course on the mash tun side- pre-acidify before adding or is it in line acidification process? Um, I would say that we acidify the water and then put it in line. Mm. There's definitely a talk of getting it more integrated, Yeah, but you know, that's just money thing. <laughs> but then also the fun part is getting your ionic concentrations, whether it's in your mash tun or through kettle additions, also equal knowing that that's not always as simple as being like, oh, it's, you know, one pound of, you know, calcium chloride per turn. And then you can't just be like, okay, it's 1.33, right? Ions don't really work like that. So you kind of have to map it differently and then do a lot of testing on the back end once you're done fermenting. And Explain that more to me because uh, I am not a chemist and uh, I feel like I'm drifting here. Well, so let's just say, for example, we talk about alkalinity, right? Yeah. Bicarbonate. In the presence of phosphoric acid, it goes away, right? It will reduce rapidly just because they essentially bind, fall out. And then whether it's, you know, your spectator ions, like your sodiums or things like that. When we think about beer, so often we really think of, I would say more of like the anions, right? Our chlorides and our sulfates. We think of those as pertaining to flavor. They can do a lot for us as brewers, but at the same time, we know that calcium is extremely important, right? Whether it's stability, flocculation, all kinds of things. So when we think about it breaking into a liquid aliquot, say your mash tun, right? In conjunction with all these different grains and sugars and whatnot, hopefully your, you know, your dough in ratio is the same, whether you're scaling up for high gravity or just doing your normal. But it's not always as simple as just saying, okay, for grain, right? I can be like, okay, 4,000 pounds. I'm going to turn that into, usually it's 1,000 pounds per turn for four turns, right? I'm going to say it's now 1,333. That scales, but it doesn't really work the same way. So I don't know what programs people use to do their ionic concentration calculations, but um, it's kind of one of those things where once you get it in range and you study your beer enough to where you know what your post-fermentation, your pre-fermentation, what all your numbers are, I think we did a lot of that homework up front, so it made this process easier. But at the same time, it's still a little difficult. And the numbers can line up, which they have many times, and the flavor doesn't. Mm. You try it in the back end, you're like, this is, this is not to brand. And, you know, of course, with the sensory team, we sit down every Friday and we're going through everything. And I'm just sitting there privately, just trying not to provide any input. I'm like, okay, please, please. I hope this works. And then I try it and I can tell immediately if it's going to work or not. And then I want to see what their opinions are. But um, this whole project, obviously. What are, what are some of the factors that have led to more success? And what are some of the conditions that seem, you know, to pose more challenges, you know, to this high gravity process? Well, fermentation, I think, is always- clearly you've had some sensory stuff that hasn't passed. Uh, you know, have you been able to kind of articulate why some of that, what, you know, some of the factors are that might predict or, uh, you know, success or not success? So one of the things that we saw pretty quickly was because we were not using um, deaerated water when we were just putting in essentially boiled water. At least we thought it was predominantly boiled. I um, mean, we'd put it we in thought line. thought it was predominantly boiled. Well, I mean, it's coming from the hot liquor tank, right? Yeah, you know, so yeah. it's like 200 plus degrees. Yeah. Um, we saw very quickly a lot of our attenuations went beyond target. Huh. 
And so I was kind of like, well, what about this? You know, OG is the same, but it was breezing past FG. Um, and one of the things we found after borrowing some tools that weren't ours was that there was still a higher amount of aeration. So the, the available oxygen. So you're over aerating your yeast. Uh -huh. Okay. So that was one of them. And also fan, right? Yeah. When you think about this grain up front, you think, well, it's probably going to be even. It's probably going to carry over the same. It doesn't always actually. Hmm. So we saw, luckily right now, I say luckily, I mean, the double-edged sword fans really high and just, you know, base malts. Um, at least that we, we've seen a lot of that with um, our grain partners and protein as well. But um, so just getting sure, making sure that the yeast nutrients so are So you're extracting more fan than you expected to because of this higher gravity brew with all this additional grain? For certain brands, yeah. Huh. And then you get that on. You're not like, watering your fan back that way. Uh, it didn't always line up the way I huh. thought it would. Interesting. Um, and then really it's, it's, there's, I want to say I understand it. Yeah. But there's also that thing we talked about before, the humility aspect. Sure. There's a lot that I'm still kind of figuring out, but overall it's been awesome for our program. We've achieved the goal of being able to, A, produce beer quicker. That's still equal quality, which is not really the goal, Right. But then from there, just kind of solving for one problem that was around. Quicker means, you know, maybe you can either you can brew more in the same brew house or you can brew it with fewer late night shifts for yes. the people that you care about. So <laughs> Exactly. So yeah. we, we've been able to honor our team just by better understanding the different ways that we can produce beers and taking thoughtful risks in order to kind of fight for this idea of what excellence looks like, not just for our business, but really by focusing on the people. Yeah. And that's like one of those times where a fear can be a good motivator. It's definitely not the outcome that I expected, um, but I went into it trying to solve for, I think, almost a different problem than figuring out output. Sure. Now, you know, if you're thinking about high gravity brewing, you know, naturally my thought, I mean, you've got a range of, you know, kinds of dilutions. You can, you know, you can brew at different kinds of ratios to try to achieve different kinds of efficiencies there. And naturally, if you're going down this road, your inclination is going to want to be to maximize that efficiency, get the, you know, the highest ratio of original, you know, original brew to, to finish beer that you possibly can. Um, and I imagine that you've tested that range to find where, you know, that sweet spot is. Talk to me about, you know, how you manage through some of that, you know, you're not going to like bring a two to one brew, you know, would be a, a grand dream, but maybe not, <laughs> maybe won't get you you know, to the same kind of place. And so you've settled on your 1.33, you know. Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the idea of turning a 120 into three turns is nice. Yeah. Right. You know, obviously when we do a 90 or you get smaller than that. But two turns would be even better, Peter. Is it though? Would it? Is I mean, it? I mean. On paper it would. In terms of your L's. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's all about how it tastes. There's, there's a lot that we can do to honor our team. But I truly know this, especially with our team. The best way that I can honor them is by having them be proud of what we're making. Um, so there's a lot of ways to cut corners. And they're, it's like, just because you have a gun doesn't mean you should shoot it, right? I don't want to cut corners just to cut corners. In fact, I think a lot of us got into this game because we wanted to do it the way that it wasn't being done. We wanted to really take time to hone in on the craft. Efficiencies are fun, but not at the sake of reducing quality. So I would say at the end of the day, we just really want to measure what success looks like. Success first is flavor and people. After that, if 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 our accounting team gets too excited, I, I get nervous. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh no. So I imagine you've tested though. What what does it look like when you try to you know push that bigger? And does it just more technical problems to solve along those lines, or is you know, um, 
There's definitely the butterfly effect. Yeah. Of like you solve for one thing and it creates two new problems. But um, I also, at this point, I haven't really tested the outside limits of this. Yeah. I only solve for places where I think that there's a problem. And even then, I don't even know if there's a problem there. I want to be prepared to be able to pull the lever if that day does come. Obviously, we've implemented a lot of these strategies, but it doesn't mean that we have to do them all the time. And if it reduces quality for any reason, I'm usually going to be a firm no. Now, there's definitely times where you could say you could. I've had this argument with my business partners. We're like, hey, we have this really big push. Can we pull this lever? One of them was with Dr. Robot was the idea of instead of doing kettle souring, using the Lincensia thermotolerance to then go acidify during fermentation. Right. Yep. And we had that conversation. What's the brand name for that one? Oh, I think that's Philly Sour. Philly Sour. Okay. Philly Sour. That's one of the brands. And then there's the Sour VCA, which Sour, I haven't used. Right. Um, and and that was an interesting idea because, you know, obviously when it comes to our ratio for Dr. Robot, right, that's 32%. So we're brewing 390s of that. One of them acidified, blending all to produce 270 barrels for a push. And I didn't love the flavor as much. There was a piece of the TA that was missing. What I now know about Lynchensia thermotolerance is that it does a better job of pre-acidifying prior to that real act of fermentation when there's a higher original gravity. Hmm. So if I had taken maybe a high grav approach without implementing that water step during knockout, it would have produced more acid and then it would have been better for the brand. You were just at a lower, lower pH or higher TA beer that you could then blend at a, you know, the correct ratio to get to your finished piece. Correct. So yeah. it's been one of those things where I am a firm believer that we as brewers, as, as engineers, we need to know the tools that we have and how to use them. Um, like I said, just cause you have a certain tool doesn't mean you should use it all the time. Like, I personally don't love the idea of different extracts and things like that. Um, I do know that they exist. I know that people use them to achieve flavors and I want to know how to use them. Right. And so there's these different things that I want to accumulate over the years. I want to accumulate these ideas and these tools and learn from the people that are doing the best job to when a problem does come up or an opportunity comes up that I can say, okay, this is a unique way that we can solve this unique problem. But when this problem does not live and it's not present, we can just do it the way that we always do it. So I think at the end of the day, a lot of us as brewers, we are really uniquely positioned to be creative problem solvers. Sure, sure. I want to actually talk more about Dr. Robot because brewing a brand of that kind of scale, you know, a number two, one or two brand for you as a brewery and doing it in that kind of production environment with that in that kind of volume um, is a particular, you know, challenge uh, from a production standpoint. Uh, it's not like you're just going to go build an extra kettle and, you know, and then uh, let stuff sit there. So I want to, I want to, you know, kind of dive in and how you do that before we do that, no matter what you're canning, Twin Monkeys Beverage Systems has the solution. With a versatile lineup of quality canning and packaging equipment made in the USA, their troop is ready to customize a setup for your craft business. Need on-site training or help with installation? You got it. Visit twinmonkeys.net today to learn just how easy it is to get your craft into cans. Also, yeast is an incredible living microorganism. We've known for many years now that uh, yeast has a crucial impact on the flavor profile and other sensory properties of beverages. It affects a wide range of characteristics, such as fruity and floral notes, phenolic or spicy character, the body of the beer, and more. Fermentous beer yeast strain lineup is designed to answer the requirements of all brewers. So uh, release your creativity. 
Visit www.fermentus.com or explore their app to discover more about yeast behavior and characterization. And ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They're proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider-making, wine-making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. So let's talk about Dr. Robot. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I, I love this blended approach where, uh, you know, a portion of that beer is acidified. You brew another base beer. You know, again, not to overdo it, but I was just, uh, you know, filming the, uh, this video class with uh, Lauren in New Belgium. And, you know, they use a similar process for their Dominga sour, except it's wood-aged sour beer. Very cool. Uh, you know, but and I love this idea of beers that are not necessarily just single stream beers that are kind of, a you know, component products of, uh, of different components that are used from a technical standpoint. And, and especially when it comes to, uh, you know, fruited American tart or sour beers like, you know, the... The beer itself is often not the focus of those. Um, it's a flavor component, but it's not the end-all, be-all. However, of course, the quality of that, uh, the quality of that base, and the uh, you know the acidity and uh, the kind of uh, palate that it provides for the fruit flavors to to you know uh, build from is incredibly important. Uh, and as we're all trying to understand, like also the acid components of these beers um, beyond just lactic acid can also be increasingly important in order to kind of convey that rounded fruit flavor. So let's talk about Dr. Robot for a little bit. Dr. Robot is a fascinating um, case study in two ideas. First one is consumer trends. Um, I think it was probably about 2017. We almost killed Dr. Robot because it just wasn't working in Georgia. Um, we liked the beer. We loved the flavor. It just wasn't really responding well. And then we go and we launch I think it was right in 2018 when we did CBC here in Nashville. We launched Tennessee. Tennessee single-handedly made Dr. Robot, like I think probably right now, our number one brand. Huh. Um, and of course, Dr. Robot's taken off because it's not really a sour, right? It's more right. of like a session tart ale. I agree. I hate calling them sour beers because really it's more just a fruit beer. And acidity is a component of that fruit beer, but it's more... It's not about the acidity. It's about the no. fruit, right? I guess sour beer is obviously... Uh, to me, it's a very different idea. Yeah. Um, so this one was just a session tart ale. Um, we use fresh lemon peel, and then we also will do um, blackberry. Um, so we'll kick that in during fermentation. So that was the one idea that we started just thinking about, just because it doesn't work here, maybe we'll work somewhere else, right? So thank you, um, Tennessee, for that. Next, um, Dr. Robot, we have figured out how to make Dr. Robot on so many different levels. So whether we're doing a 90 barrel of it, a 120 of it, or 180 barrels of it. That's the way we think about doing it starting every Friday and then usually coming in Sunday night or Monday morning to finish up the process. Um, so the idea is right. I think everyone understands kettle souring at this point. For example, right now, we more commonly will do 180 barrels of it. So on a Friday, we will essentially go and fill up um, first. So we mash in, do everything, go to kettle, boil for 10 minutes, knock it out, hitting it with carbon dioxide, and then re-return that into our 10-barrel R&D kettle, and then as well as our mash tun. At that point, mm. we already have another one in the larder tun, and then it goes into the kettle, another 10 barrels, uh, sorry, sorry, another 10 minutes of boil, then it gets re-returned to that kettle. So on average, we have about 84 barrels of wort converting over the weekend. 
then from there, go in the next, you know, say Monday, boil everything up, kick it out, and then do two standard turns for each 90 to fill them up. Relatively easy enough. So once they're in tank, I think stabilized pH is around 3.7. Um, our pH that we what, shoot- What is uh, what uh, bacteria? You're just using a standard lactose strain in the hot side? Faye. Yogurt. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, we All have, right. <laughs> I know. The, the, the yogurt, we, we have done lab grown. We've done everything. Yeah. Um, over the years, I mean, I th- there's so many different great talks in the past around people just using yogurts. I found that I really like just the profile you get, or just the diversified mm. acids. The sicinic acid is always a bigger one than people talk. Sicinic acid? Yeah, people talk about that. I feel like very little compared to the lactic acid and other things. But um, in the composition of a kettle sour, I've heard different people have different opinions. But when you use these different kind of diverse unpasteurized yogurts, you can get different acid profiles, right? Um, from there, it gets more complex. Dr. How much? How much of this yogurt to brew a a beer of that scale are you do you have to use oh i think that it's a good question i think or do you just prop up and then add some prop no i mean like we've done a lot of different ways right now we're trying to keep it as low as possible i think no more than 96 ounces for a 42 barrel conversion Hmm. um from there then the beer gets more complex also can't be a vegan beer if you do it that way yeah well i don't think that we're claiming vegan beers (laughs) um from there then we um we'll go and the next step is obviously getting the fruit into it. So then we have to use, whether it's a 10 barrel, usually a 10 barrel tank, and then we will um, add pectinase to that just to get that to fall out. So the whole process of making that beer is actually one of the more difficult beers that we make. Sure. Um, it's one that oftentimes has the tightest timeline. You know, it'll start fermenting on that Monday and then by Thursday we're kicking in the fruit and everything's working like, you know, around the clock with it. but. And so then you blend this sour beer that you brew with another non-sour base. No. No. Okay. So it all goes I into, caught that wrong. Though. It all goes into one tank. Okay. So the first kettle soured version will go in first. We'll wait to pitch yeast. We'll knock out a non-kettle soured version of that into that. Then pitch once the pH is appropriate. Oh, okay. And then okay. do one more turn. So inside that tank, it's at a 33% sour interesting so you're 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 blending before fermentation basically after acidification before fermentation rather than blending two finished beers that have all gone their own we have done both like we talked about with the idea of using the licencia um and that's when we need to get you know brew a lot at once but we tried that and i didn't like it as much it was an idea that we knew how to exercise and we know it exists what didn't you like about it just wasn't true to target i think that there's something about the profile that you get, the acid profile from, say, Lincensia, that very different from unpasteurized yogurt. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something diverse around the acid profile that has, it's, it's endearing. Endearing is a word that I've grown to use around, like diacetyl in the Czech Republic. It's endearing, right? Um, yeah. It doesn't mean that it's- Drinkability. It's, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. And I think that there are aspects about Dr. Robot as, as a producer of it that things that I dislike. And then there's things that I dislike that I recognize that our consumers like. Now you take a science approach to this. Uh, have you tested that? And do you know what some of those acids are? Yeah. I mean, oftentimes there's in, in, in the past we would harvest, right? This take from like about six half barrels, harvest that, reintroduce it so we could keep it going. And that was when we weren't doing yogurt. Um, we've tried all different kinds of yogurts, but 
the few times that we've had the ability to use, um, you know, different advanced equipment um, from whether it's like Georgia State or Kennesaw State over in Atlanta, um, we've seen just different results to the point where I don't always know if it's useful. The one that always stuck out to me was sicinic acid. Hmm. Um, and then I've seen a lot of these, um, maybe you've seen these different providers out there that offer acid blends to put to your beer to make it taste like it's a kettle sour product. And I'm not going to name any names, but wow. Oof. Jeez Louise. Um, and I see that they do other things like that, but I always assumed it was just lactic. I think I always just took that approach that it was a lactic conversion. And seeing some other ones and then talking with other producers who I won't name them by name, they kind of saw the same thing, that it wasn't as simple as just lactic. Um, so it's not something that I feel comfortable enough to speak on because I haven't fully mapped it and quantified sure, it. Sure, But I know it's just not as simple as what we have always thought it was. You know, I think it goes to, you know, we're making a craft product, right? You know, you're selling it as craft beer and you're selling it at a premium to consumers and consumers have an expectation around that, that it's made in a way that doesn't feel industrial or, or simply dosed in that sense. Um, you know, but having said that, you know, wine, obviously winemakers acid blends are a common tool the winemakers use. They're not using it to create all, everything and they're using it to tweak and balance those things. And I think all of these products, if they're used in a tweak and balance kind of approach can do something different than if you're using it to be the entire thing or the, the base of yeah. those things. And so, um, yeah. Uh, it all kind of comes back to that intention of the creator and, and how you employ them, right? Well, with wine, I mean, you have tartaric acid, you know, yeah. sulfuric acid, especially. Um, you see that a lot more outside of the new world. Um, but yeah, I get it. I like those integrations pre-fermentation, right. pre though. I don't really like on the back end. I don't what do you think fermentation does to help, uh, you know, kind of change the character of those? I just think it's more well- Are we biotransforming acids now, Peter? What are we doing here? Don't use biotransformation <laughs> on me. I have a lot of opinions around that topic as well. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I just think that chemical integration and assimilation, Yeah, it, it, it does have a taste. It really does. I, I knew this from my early years as a winemaker. I'd messed up one uh, pre-acidification prior to fermentation with tartaric acid, and there wasn't enough in there. Um, and I remember my boss, he was like, this is a great learning opportunity for you. He was like, this is going to be your project. You're going to take this thing through fruition as a Chardonnay. And he was like, and you can go add that post-fermentation. And he's like, and we're going to treat it exactly the same. We're going to study it. And at the end of the day, you'll fully understand why we don't do this. And it's one of those things where I think if we'd had more tools and toys back then, we could have easily mapped it and been like, on a chemical level, this is why we don't do that. And maybe done some other different tests. But really, sensory is all you need. You can taste it. You can taste when someone's added whether it's, you know, lactic acid post-fermentation. I don't know if you've ever tried a beer where it's kind of been present. It's almost medicinal in a way. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just think there's something to it. And I, I can't fully put the finger on it, but I can taste it. Are there uh, some other acid contributions like citric or malic, especially when you're talking about fruit beers that uh, that you like to, you know, focus on and, and you know, make sure that are adding some roundness to these uh, fruited sour or fruited tart beers? I personally do not add either one of those no. acids. No. Um, I like certain fruits that carry a heavy malic charge, whether it's like raspberry beers. I do appreciate that kind of sharp acidity. Citric, obviously, I think people add it for a lot of reasons. I've seen it more in whether it's the seltzers and things like that. And I think that it plays a role in kind of that crisp pr presentation, but it's not something I would personally add in my beer. Sure. Never have... But never say never. Who knows? Yeah. What are what are uh, in terms of flavor expression? Uh, you know, what are what are some of those fruits that you really 
lean on that you really like? And are, are there any new things that you're toying with that, uh, that are driving some excitement for you on a creative side? It's a good question. Um, I always prefer to use real fruit when yeah. possible. Um, in a puree form or I really like this real, real fruit. I really are you making like your own fruit. puree then or, um, we have before yeah. and mainly at the garage when we're doing those kind of, I would say sure. more, more sure. the high end brands we do that. But then for the commercial scale stuff, purees, obviously, um, we've entertained using juice concentrates that we water back down. Like I said, I think it's important to understand how to use all of them. That way, when the business maybe sure. needs something, sure. you can go that direction. But as of right now, there's those letters that I hear so often from my business partners. They're called COGS, cost of goods sold. And I hear that so often that sometimes I'm like, I think during the pandemic, it was easy to lose focus on quality because you right. were reducing costs. Right. And I saw a lot of brands do that, whether they're lowering their ABVs or trying to wait, find ways to, you know, because of supply chain disruptions, sure, get sure. things more priced in line. But it's a, it's a very slippery slope. Once you start focusing more on your cogs than on your quality and more on, you know, your top line, bottom line numbers versus just how people are enjoying your product, it's... It's it, not great. When it starts coming to fruit too, I mean, there's, it's just an infinitely complex prod, uh, 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 you know, process to figure out um, which fruits express better in which format because not everything expresses properly and in puree. And then, of course, purees from different manufacturers have different flavors. Yes, they do. And uh, sometimes those things, you know, change because this is also an agricultural crop. And then, of course, you know, yeah, there's a, there's a whole mess of, of things to figure out. And, of course, once you have it figured out, then either you find something new or, or something else changes. Nonetheless, like we can go down a huge rabbit hole there. Instead, uh, I kind of want to circle back to your comment about biotransformation because. Uh, oh, come on. You seem to have a, a strong <laughs> opinion there. <laughs> <laughs> this feels antagonistic. And let um, me let me just also preface this, you know, by saying, or I should at least admit that if you want to see, like, a, you know, Peter has written for us at Craft Beer and Brewing did a brewer's perspective on Brewing Milkshake IPA. Um, we've got a recipe for their slow churn milkshake milkshake IPA out there for uh, for Craft Beer and Brewing subscribers. Um, your space lettuce hazy IPA scored a ninety six with our blind judges, and then you. Uh, you want a gold medal for that one too. Like you, you know what you're talking about in this kind of realm. Um, but I'm just curious to grab your perspective uh, on this is since, uh, since uh, I mentioned it and you reacted to it. You know, it's your own fault. It's your own fault. I know I'm going to, I'm going to suffer this one. Um, I think that you just we, dangled the red flag and I had to go for it. Journalistic integrity. Look at you. Um, I think that we understand the idea of biotransformation better now than we did before. I've been in this industry for a while now, and I heard those words thrown around so frequently and freely without people demonstrating an understanding of it, but just using it and applying it so frequently. Um, so that was the first place where it got me really curious because obviously I didn't know enough to have like, you know, a visceral opinion. Um, but over time, I think that we give biotransformation a lot of credit. It's kind of like this magical term where like, oh, you know, biotransformation. And I, I always find it to be this like idea. So kind of backtracking when I was younger, my uncle used to always tell me, while you're still young and cute, ask people how they make their money. You can get away with it while you're young. So I found this level of being curious and I found almost the precociousness. So I now take that same attitude to people when they talk about biotransformation. I'm like, oh, what is, bio what, what is biotransformation in your opinion? What does it mean to you? 
And I think that with science, something that we have to acknowledge is that science doesn't really give a shit about your opinion. You know, it's it, oftentimes it's very binary. Um, so yes, do I understand that in IPAs, especially where we hear this term thrown around so frequently, I think we better understand it now. I do think a lot of these thialized approaches, um, you know, citronelle, beta citronelle, we're seeing the change happen, but I also just kind of oftentimes view that as fermentation. <laughs> sure, sure. So, I mean, I, I just think that biotransformation really had a marketing moment there where it was just really kind of like the thing. And I think thiols are very much there right now. There's, that's a word that's thrown around a lot. So when we talk about that, you know, obviously, yes, it, it is a, a fermentation process. It is a component of, you know, or a byproduct of fermentation. Does that make it not real? No, I, I wouldn't say that. Yeah. I just think that it's, it's thrown around a lot. I imagine you also have strong feelings about it. I talk to people that have strong feelings in both directions <laughs> about uh, what it is, how important it is, or whether it figures into their process. Um, there are certain aspects like, say, cell count during dry hopping. I think that's a really important parameter to think to focus on. Oh, really? I do. Okay. I do. Okay. I, I, I will give that. Um, obviously, it's not always- Where do you lie on that? Do you take cell counts before you dry hop? We have. I'm asking this one for Vinny because this is this is his. Uh, I do know his, that yeah. this is a topic of his. Um, I have been curious because of hearing the greats talk about it. Yeah. So I wanted to start to better understand and start maybe taking like a conversation and turning it into my own little small experiment, right? Yeah. Kind of better understanding it. There's also oftentimes a reality that you, even if you want to, you can't consistently do something. Right. And I think that that's something that we really need to focus on as producers when it comes to our brands is that don't do something you can't do consistently. Um, because then I. I think it just leads to confusion in your brand, but there are numbers that if I could in a perfect world, if we know maybe it was smaller or we were more well-staffed or whatever the parameters that might lead to us having that ultimate control over everything, maybe I would apply, but there's also certain styles where, you know, IPA, for example, or space lettuce, um, it wouldn't be as important to me as maybe one of our hot brands where I know that I'm going to probably probably going to dry hop a lot warmer than I would say a core brand where I want to reharvest that yeast. Um, so I'll drop, you know, space lettuce down to 60 before I dry hop it versus maybe one of our hot butts where I'll keep it 68 and kind of just consider that yeast a loss and not try to think about pitching it. So it's just different ways that I can think about it. A one-off mentality, I can be a little more specific about how I want to produce it, right. but for commercial brands, I have to be very consistent. Sure, sure. Got a great note from uh, Gavin Harper from Golden Road, who had been testing. He mentioned following up on that podcast conversation with uh, with Vinny and Matt and whatnot. Uh, you know that they had done a lot of testing on that kind of thing and found that it was almost impossible to test. Yeast, you know, get accurate, consistent cell counts of yeast. You know, before dry hopping, that yep. uh, even on the same brands and the same kind of uh, same day of fermentation. Same, you know, area of sample pour is just, you know, it's too difficult. Like you just got such inconsistent readings from that, that it almost became a metric that was too difficult to But you can uh, also think use. like pH is also really important, especially when it yeah. comes to dry hopping, right? I've seen a lot of different aromatic compounds or just sensory profiles be achieved by as simple as, you know, lowering or, you know, finishing pH by two tenths of a point, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot of little levers. Do I fully understand all of this? I could live lifetimes and not understand so much of this. Sure. Um, but it's really fun to get to explore. Hearing these podcasts, like the one that you do, it just there's so many doors that get opened up. And then every time you open another door, there's 30 more doors. And you just see, I feel like it's our responsibility to keep looking 
And then there's the few that have the ability to really capture it and to help teach it. And the teachers become the leaders, right? Do I want to be there one day? Absolutely. But I think to, to be a teacher, you always have to be a student. So I have opinions, which I said earlier, science doesn't really care about your opinions. But until my opinions are facts, I have to keep them private at least enough to not maybe put someone in the wrong direction. Sign me up for the Peter Kiley ashram because uh, I, I would love to, to study with you someday. Um, but let's talk about any other things on the, the hoppy beer uh, realm that you all have been learning from over the last year or two that uh, um, that either, either felt uh, you know interesting or you know kind of led you to pursue more lines of inquiry. It's a good question. Um, I mean, obviously, when it comes, <laughs> I can be a little cynical around IPAs, um, especially with the hazies. Do I like making them? I really do. I, it wasn't my favorite style to pursue from the beginning. I have a, a very deep passion and, and respect for hops as a whole. But oftentimes it feels like in the contemporary market, the hardest part about making an IPA is marketing it. Um, so for me, it's been really surrounding Just making another over-oaked Chardonnay, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't really think about it like that, but maybe. Um no, it's it's been it's been fun watching the advanced sure, products, sure. right? So one of the projects we work on is just really trying to increase yield. Um, that was one of those low hanging fruits with our hot pot line. I think with a lot of American craft beer, especially the experiential stuff, excess can equal success, and I don't really like that approach. I think that we've seen it with the fruited sours and all these kind of crazy things. People just throw more and more and more in and. I don't love that approach. I, I, I respect the people that do that and it works for them. Not all of them, but um, I've always wanted to find ways to get the flavors I want and still get the yields that we need. Um, so the advanced stuff's always been fun. Changing temperature parameters around isomerization has been fun. Um, I, I think that, you know- Tell me more about both of those things. You know, what is your, some of your experience uh, in a, an experimentation with advanced hot products led to and are you finding- ways to use those to get kind of, uh, you know, compelling flavor results that you're really looking for in these? Yeah. Um, I would say that we've gone to the point now, especially with a lot of our hot pot and our hazy stuff. I don't even do kettle IBUs. It's pretty much all whirlpool at that point. Mm. Um, from there, you know, not even first word. No. Mm. Um, I think it was, uh, HVG did a really good presentation and paper on first word hopping. And there were some, ideas that I had about it that were wrong. Um, and I don't remember the paper well enough. I was talking with uh, Johan from their group. Um, but it was something that I started stepping away from unless there's something that maybe like a thial idea that I wanted to capture, you know, maybe using Cascade, sure. something like that that had a lot of the good precursors. But from there, I started just kind of playing with, you know, whether it's incognito exclusively um, in the Whirlpool, knock that out. Maybe we could change the temperature at that. I usually account for 7% utilization. In our Whirlpool, we're about 208. By the time we're knocking out and done knocking out, we're probably around 203. So I find it a safer percent utilization than to lean on 5% because we would just usually generate more IBUs than right. we planned. And I think especially with hazies, it's a little bit, I, I would encourage people to lean more towards the idea of less IBUs than more if you want to get it out of your fermenter faster. But then at the same time, once we did that, we started you know doing always mid-fermentation dry hop. Biotransformation. I do believe in the general idea. So I Oh, look at that. But oh, I, I just don't like how freely it's a used. A moment of honesty here. Huh? Well, okay. we, we will use probably no more than a pound per <laughs> barrel of cast, uh, sorry, of uh, Citra Cryo. 
um, during that, probably about, I'd say, with three points of attenuation left. Yeah. So it puts them in there, but we never let our hops sit for more than 24 hours. Usually about 24 hours we're dropping. Um, and then from there, I've played with, you know, the different kind of advanced products for just the dry hopping side to increase yield. Um, I've trialed a few different why, things. Why such a short contact time? Scott Janish has a few different pieces that I've read and that I've enjoyed. Um, I've heard different takes. I started at three days, then I worked down the two days. And now I'm kind of at one to where I'm getting what I want and I'm not carrying a lot of that vegetative charge over. Hot burn is something that is also there. And there's, I mean, we're still seeing the creep and things like that, but we're giving it time. So one thing that we do that's kind of interesting, and I think I know of a few other more popular hazy producers that I won't call by name, we're keeping our IPAs cold crash for about anywhere from two to three weeks hmm. before we can them, just because we find that we can work through a lot of the awkwardness, um, a lot of that burn, a lot of those things. We can do that privately in tank and not leave it up to our consumers to be patient. Because I think that when we go in, we can a product and we put that date code on it. That's when people start viewing freshness, right? And I think that's what we should start measuring it by, not from when fermentation started. Um, as long as those steps are taken along the way to preserve the quality of the product. But I don't like the idea of like freshness being like, how fast can I get it out of a fermenter from the day I started brewing it? So something that we've done and we found that we've worked through a lot of flavors and when we are ready to present it, your beer should be just as great on day one as it is on day 15 or day 30 or whatever you're thinking your timeline is for these hazy, unfiltered IPAs. But So you're, you're spending a three-week lagering process then with your hazy IPAs? At times, if it's not ready, if it's still awkward, absolutely. I'm yeah. not going to go put it in the can just to say it's fresh. I would rather have it be quality and presentable and enjoyable than this idea of fresh. It's not a terrible approach to take to this. Um, how much of that hot burn is is you know, derived from the intensity of something like cryo versus something like uh, you know hop a material in a T90, you know, and uh, you know larger charges there. Obviously, you know, there's some some point of debate there, and, the, and certainly vendors will want to make a point that that intensity of something like cryo or, you know, uh, Spectrum using some of these other kinds of products will help reduce that hot burn. How much is, is time? How much is, is vegetal material with that? In my experience, and this is just my anecdotal take on it, I found that I can get what I need from the hops that I'm using, whether it's T90, cryo 45s, you know, um, Spectrum, these different products that we have to use, I can get what I need usually within 24 hours, maybe 36, depending on what I'm doing. Um, we take CO2 rouse approach, so I'm not doing a full turn, like you know, tank turnover with the pump. Um, we're keeping things warm too, so we're not at 60. We're usually around 67, 68 um, for these terminal dry hops. So, still, well, still letting that yeast do its thing to you know scrub out correct diastolase yeah. and aldehyde and all those other fun things that that excess fermentation will cause. I do think, though, in my experience, a lot of the hot burn has come from. It's just the hops sitting around in that tank longer thinking that we're extracting. And when you do these relatively large charges, I think it was Bob from Highland Park. He has a fun approach. It's very simple in idea where say it's, you know, two pounds per barrel. Um, he'll do one day, one pound per barrel. Let it do its thing, drop off. Next day, do the next. When we just throw it all in there at once, I don't think that we're getting the extraction that we expect or want. And just think about it. It's all sitting at the bottom of that cone, right? So unless you're really turning it over, which then you're also agitating other aspects of the beer, the yeast, 
And I don't really like that violent approach to beer making. Volatizing off or aromatic compounds into the headspace of the beer, all of those things. Sure. Terminal dry hopping, we're also closing off our blow off. We want to capture some aspects of it. Hmm. But um, just getting it off that hop has been, at least in my opinion, it's proven to be something that I've enjoyed about our beers. Um, I've talked to other people about it. I've seen people that have varying opinions, some that thinks it's too short, some that agree with that approach. I don't see anyone doing more than really two days. But um, then again, I'm not also talking to everyone. I'm sure there's a lot of great people that are doing something totally different that have beers that are world-class and that I love. And I would be so surprised if I heard their opinion. And thank goodness there are, because that gives me more people to talk to about those kinds of things. Let's let's pull back from this technical piece and let's talk about creativity for a little bit. Uh, you know, as we as we zoom out a bit, um, you, you know, the Monday night has now grown to you know thirty something thousand barrels. Like at you know multiple tap rooms in mo- in multiple states. Um, you know, there's a bigger idea of the brand. The brand has to then serve audiences that are not all uh, you know kind of you know similar. Obviously, different beers sell different places. Different different audiences want different things from you. Um, but you also have to you know number one maintain a constant stream of of innovation that people expect from you. That's what people want out of craft beer. They want uh, they want some of that exploration and they want to try new things. So you have to be able to feed that, but you have to do it at a scale here that makes sense. And uh, if they're in a way, you know, obviously with a staff the size you have that, that uh, you know, you want to keep people engaged and you want to, you know, be positive for them and let everyone like have some contribution. How do you manage this kind of process of creativity now? What does innovation look like for Monday night? Um, what are the parameters around that and how, where, you know, and, and, and I'm not even calling it one thing, like there are mo- probably multiple avenues of innovation that you're, you know, exploring concurrently. What is, what is, you know, the entire process look like? And do you have some, some lanes that you drive innovation through? That's an awesome question. Um, so I have, I've had many different opinions about this over time, right? My first solidified opinion was that I find it to be really difficult to democratize creativity. Um, Oftentimes a single author writes a good book. Um, You know, too many cooks in the kitchen hasn't always resulted in the best ideas. Usually when a group agrees on an idea, when they all have their own separate ideas, they choose the least exciting one because it's almost in a way the least offensive. Um, So that's something to that lowest common denominator thing and crowds will just discover it on their own that way. Yeah, and I think it sucks. Um, There's something so extremely stimulating about taking an abstract idea and creating a physical product. A lot of us got into this game just to practice that, just to flex that muscle as often as we can. Um, So over the years, I found that in order to have the best team, I had to give away a lot of the toys that I had in my role. Um, And first one was at the garage. So the garage, I loved the idea of just running and fostering this barrel program. It was something that was so, it felt like still that piece of me that got to live in the wine world. And I loved it. It felt so deliberate and peaceful. And my wife and I, she, Rachel, she's also our business partner and our COO. Um, she, we lived across the street from the garage when we had our first kid. And I just remember being out there and if I wasn't with them, I was with the barrels and something so soothing about it. And then 2018 happened and we started growing more. Um, and then, then came in our wood cellar manager, Tim McDonald. And Tim is a wizard with this stuff. Um, was at Highland Park and then Calusa. Um, and he has a very artistic approach to his science. And I have a very scientific approach to my art. Um, 
And so we kind of, I recognized that for him to really deepen and to do his thing well, I had to kind of give it away. And that was the first act of being like, okay, you have to provide trust in order to foster creativity, but you also have to have very firm guardrails around just like, just cause you can make it doesn't mean it needs to exist. So one of the things I teach our younger members when I help them get to the point where I'm like, okay, I think in your path now you need to start creating. There's two things that happen. Either people are going to like it or they're not going to like it. And frankly, if it's non-offensive, I think that's almost even worse. I'd rather someone really dislike it or really like it. Not for the sake of shock, but just that they're engaged, right? When it's just something, when when apathy is the result, that just kind of sucks. So I tell them, I think even Jesus said something about that. (laughs) Something about lukewarm, you know, be hot or cold, right? Yeah. So, I mean, over the years, I, I, I like the first approach with people yeah. when they come in, I'm like, hey, what do you want to make? And usually it's either something really, really benign, classic, safe, or it's something like way over the top. So the first exercise is like, I want you to look back over the years of Monday Night Brewing, and I want you to understand all the things that we've made, whether it's untapped, wherever you want to look, go look at what we've made. See if what your ideas are, see how recently we approach that. For us right now, a small batch is a 30-barrel tank. Um, and that usually would just be fed for our tap rooms only in draft. We might put, you know, 50 to 80 cases in cans, um, maybe t- up to 20 to 40 cases in bottles. But outside of that, we still keep it relatively draft. So it's kind of safe. Um, so I'm like, look at what we've made. Then from there, let's say, okay, I still want to explore this style. I'm like, okay. So write a press release. And they're always so shocked. I'm like, write a press release. Tell me why this beer needs to exist. And I I love that approach. Because when you see someone try to explain why their work needs to exist, they oftentimes will find that maybe that work doesn't need to exist. Or it will help them to better understand what's going to make that beer special and stand out. At the same time, it also gives a lot of guidance and assistance to marketing, which I think is good to get that up front. Some of the best brewers I know are actually really just good marketers. I think a lot of brewers agree that they don't want to be told what to make from a marketing team. So it's nice to be able to kind of tell your story through your product versus telling someone else's story through your product. Um, Then from there, we kind of just look at the architecture of it. So everyone on my brew team has now created their own products and we'll sit down and we'll go through the architecture of it. Whether they started on like a Sabco and we want to scale it up to a 30 um, or we did a little 10 project or it's going to go to a few barrels, whatever it might be. We really look at it. We'd look at it from the point of view of how do we make this batch? And also, how are we going to scale this if it works? Plan on success. If you're not thinking about success yet, and or or you don't even expect it to happen, then there's also a piece of me that's like, maybe we should consider something about this beer to be flawed. It doesn't have to be great to want to make it, but there's still something like, why make it if it's not going to have the chance of being awesome? So there's that idea. And I pushed my people there because I want them to think, I, w- I want them to think with confidence. And if confidence is not the result and someone hates what they make, that's oftentimes one of the greatest learning points. It's because you learn about failure. You learn about artistic vulnerability. I think that's really important. Emotional intelligence is one of the greatest things a producer can have. Because you know, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people, it's, it's, it can be pretty rough out there when you put your work out there and people are just hiding behind a keyboard and talking a lot of shit about the things that you put a lot of work into. And there's days where that oh, is- Oh, hell yeah. They're, they're Go in, to Apple Podcasts and read the reviews on this very <laughs> podcast. There are it's days humbling, where- It's humbling, Peter. It's humbling. Th- there are days where that will crush sure, you. Sure, sure. 
And so I also want them to understand. Yeah. Like it's great when someone's first beer is a huge success. I love that for them. I think confidence definitely plays a role in a great brewer. You have to believe in yourself first before anyone else right. is going to believe in you. But at the same time, humility is also better. Um, so I actually really personally love it when I watch someone get kind of kicked in the teeth first. That's a really good starting point. This is the idea of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Have you ever heard this? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's kind of like your launch point. You're in that valley of despair. You think, I don't know anything. And that's usually those people that say, there's so much to know. I know so little of it. And once they work their way out of that really dark place, they start cruising. They start developing. They start learning more. They start outpacing a lot of other people who think they already got it all figured out. So I like that approach. And I don't ever want to guarantee that for someone. I don't want to be like, okay, let's, I'm going to help you make a bad beer. Because obviously I have a business and a brand that we want to preserve. And I don't want to make anything that I know is going to absolutely not work. But I do want to make things that I know at times might be designed just to push people. Maybe it will attract a few pallets. Maybe we will better understand an idea that we're getting closer to approaching on a larger scale. So we want to trial it. Or maybe we want to try out the idea that we know that this brand, like say Dr. Robot, works better in Tennessee. Or maybe we want to try out a brand that we know that might do better in one of our other markets. And we want to launch them probably in those markets first. But there's a lot of different ways that you can look at what you do, not just as like being content creators, but also creating an experiment within the content you're creating and testing out hypotheses and engaging with different consumers. Because frankly, all of our tap rooms don't exist just to generate revenue. They should have a soul. They should exist in their communities for a reason that betters the community. And we should make beers at times that are unique to just that community. I think that's part of it having its, you know, raison d'etre. It's 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 appeal to that. Cause if it's just a franchised idea that's everywhere, that kind of kind of sucks. So at the end of the day, creativity in our group, which is relatively large now, all of our brewers produce content. Um, you know, our brewer in Birmingham, Jordan, um, Tim, Logan, Trevor, all of them, they all produce something. And I think it's 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 important because at the end of the day, it makes them better. It makes our collective brand stronger. We have all these different styles that can't just come from one brain. And really it helps with the idea of retention. When people are engaged, I find that work we do just tastes better. And the other truth is that when people feel liked, loved, respected, they always do better work. And one of those ways of honoring them is being with them as they go into this maybe a vulnerable place, a place where they don't feel confident. They say, hey, I could really use your help. I want this to work. I always tell them, I'm like, look, when this beer gets launched, it's not going to be you made this beer. This is still a Monday Night Brewing beer. But that's only if the beer goes well. (laughs) And at the same time, if it doesn't go well, then that's also okay because the team makes every beer, right? There's not one person that's like, I'm going to brew this. I'm going to cellar it. I'm going to package it. It's all me. Um, But we all take this collective risk because we all want to develop. If you're not developing where you are, get out. That seems like a great place to bring this to a close. GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24 7 service and support. Nectaron is available and ready to ship from BSG Hops. Join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community with their craft concentrate blends. Take your brewing to the next level with AccuBrew's revolutionary fermentation monitoring system. ProBrew's rotary can fillers reduce waste and produce higher quality packaged beer. Try Indie Hops unique varieties to modernize, brighten, and diversify your beers. Twin Monkeys offers customizable packaging solutions for every craft. The fermentous beer yeast strain lineup is designed to answer the requirements of all brewers 
and ABS Commercial is your full-service brewery outfitter. If you've enjoyed this podcast or any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, show us that this content matters to you. Peter, this has been a fantastic conversation, and as much as I missed having it uh, back in December, I'm really glad that we got to have it now here in Nashville on this, uh, you know, during this craft brewers conference uh, over a couple of cans of bus beer that you brewed with a large scale collaboration with other folks that were on your 2022 check mission. We didn't even talk about check beers, but we could probably just talk ad nauseum about that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure everyone's heard enough about that for me. Um, if people want to learn more about you, about Monday night, what you all are doing, uh, drink your beers, visit your, visit your tap rooms. Uh, where do they find you all? Good question. Um, first off, thanks for having me on here. This has been great. I've always wanted to do this. Was it? I hope it was as fun as you thought it might be. I mean, G and D chillers. Let's go. Like, that's <laughs> it. I'm like, I can play that whole piano riff. No, um, I would say to find Monday Night Brewing, we are in Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, and soon to be North Carolina with our Charlotte location. We also distribute in those markets, also with North Carolina soon. Um, if you want to learn more about us, MondayNightBrewing.com, Monday Night on Instagram. Um, yeah, we're out here. Well, thanks for joining me for the podcast. It was phenomenal talking to you about everything from high gravity brewing to kettle sours, um, and even biotransformation. Man, <laughs> can't believe you got me out of my shell on that one. Very caged, you know, just I feel dangerous with that topic. Nonetheless, it's great talking with you. I'm looking forward to, to sharing some more beers uh, as this week goes on here in Nashville. Cheers. Cheers, friends. See ya. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. 